Good morning. Special next day, free shipping delivery of an $85, 85-pound bag of dog food. Ah, huh, right on time. I bet if I tried to ship this, it would cost more than $85. Huh. But someone paid for this bag to get from the manufacturer's warehouse to a fulfillment center, and then from the fulfillment center to my door, and for it to show up above the fold in search on the website. How does anyone make money here? This can't be profitable. Welcome back to another episode of Mastering Retail by Essential Digital Commerce. My name is Emma Irwin, and I'm a senior editor and specialist at Essential. If you haven't figured it out already, today we're talking profitability in e-commerce. You know, that important piece of the puzzle where we're trying to figure out how to actually make money selling our goods online while prioritizing the consumer. My guest for today's episode is... My name is Andrea Lay, and I am founder and CEO of The Illum Group. And Andrea is here to help walk us through profitability on a deeper level than just making money. What do we really mean by profitability? What are the common hurdles? Why do brands sell unprofitable products online? And how can brands troubleshoot those hurdles to profitability? But first, let's get to know the Illum Group and then Andrea's background because we have a direct relationship between her career to this point and profitability. We are an education company. We work with consumer brands, retailers, and brand enablers which some people refer to as agencies. And we focus on educating the population on e-commerce and digital commerce topics. So we have kind of three main product lines. The first is an e-learning offering. So we have a robust curriculum online. And those classes are, we develop those in partnership with an instructional designer. And they're all delivered via an LMS. So that's kind of the education that scales. And the courses cover topics such as retail media advertising, Amazon advertising, and we offer an e-commerce strategy certification as well as a Amazon strategy certification and a retail media strategy certification on our e-learning platform. We also do live workshops for consumer brands, brand enablers, and retailers. And we offer manufacturer and retailer share groups on various topics related to e-commerce. Perfect. Thank you for that. And I'd love to go back in time and talk a little bit how you got to Illum Group. And then, as you know, just a little bit about your time at Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, prior to founding Illum Group a couple of years ago, I led client strategy for an e-commerce agency called IdeoClick. And we worked with a couple hundred consumer brands and we managed their e-commerce business on Amazon, Walmart, Target, Instacart. And then prior to my time at IdeoClick, I ran an e-commerce consultancy. And then prior to that, I spent 10 years at Amazon as a category leader. And I worked across a number of different product categories there, but I spent most of my time in health and personal care and consumables and grocery, Amazon Fresh. Some of my more noteworthy projects at Amazon were launching their automated price matching system. So the competitive monitoring tool. And so launched that Gosh, that was probably around 2006. And then also worked on the launch of the CRAP or Can't Realize Profit or CRAP program at Amazon in the US and then went on to launch that program in Canada as well. Before we go full profitability mode, I had to ask about the last thing Andrea purchased on Amazon. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I bought, what did I buy? I'm going to have to look at my Amazon history to answer. Oh, I bought, I bought Foundation. And the I buy it on Amazon because it's a brand that's hard to find. And also I always forget what color I use. 
and they have it all stored in my past purchases. So I can just go into my past purchases and do order again. I even they even have like a cool search feature now where if you search for a product you bought in the past, it will it will give you a search suggestion for that product and it will give you the last date that you bought it which makes it super handy. You don't even have to go into your past order history anymore. You just personalize search. One last question before we actually get talking about profitability. I'm going to ask it now and we'll come back to it at the end as a way to round out. But something that is on a digital wish list of yours, which means that it just like sits in a cart forever and either in an app, in a tab on your computer that you never actually purchase. And we'll get to why you won't actually purchase it toward the end if that sounds good. Totally. All right, now let's talk profitability. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably work in some field related to business, which means that you know the equation profit equals revenue minus cost. But if it were actually that simple, this episode wouldn't exist. Even plain profit and overall profitability don't necessarily mean the same thing. I asked Andrea to tell me what we mean when we talk about profitability in e-commerce. Typically, when we're talking about profitability in e-commerce, we're also including the cost to deliver. So, you know, the thing to remember about most e-commerce platforms, unless you're looking at home grocery delivery, where the economics are a little bit different, is that a lot of those items are going to, well, first, the average order size is really low. And so, you know, the shopper typically only orders like a couple of things at it, like on an Amazon.com or Walmart.com, et cetera. And most of those items are going to ship alone. And so that cost to deliver is amortized over like often just a single unit. And even if the shopper does place an order for multiple units, they may come from different fulfillment centers. And so they're still shipping alone. And so that cost to deliver is an important component of the e-commerce profitability equation. And that includes like the, you know, the outbound shipping cost. The retailers are getting better and better at lowering that outbound shipping cost. Amazon in particular is now doing like, I want to say in their last earnings call, they said around 80% of their outbound shipments through their their own transportation arm. So they don't use an external carrier anymore. I think that's really helped them with visibility for the shopper in terms of like where the product is in the delivery cycle, but also help has helped them with cost and lowering that cost. And also we're seeing the retailers, you know, use micro fulfillment centers and try to forward deploy as much fast moving inventory as possible, as close to the shopper as they can so that that last mile is as cheap as possible. You know, if you look back to maybe 2005, 2010 on Amazon, like most of their shipments had to go in the air in order to meet the prime delivery promise. I would say almost none of their products have to go through the air now. So they've really been able to lower those costs, but it's still, there's still a cost of delivering the item that doesn't exist when a shopper goes into a physical store. That was, did you just like say that all off the top of your head? Because I'm like, whoa. That's what I talk about all day. <laughs> that was, that was amazing. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I just had to, had to put that out there. Okay. You mentioned the equation for profitability. Is there like truly a set equation for profitability? You can make it specific to Amazon. That is like the, I'm thinking of the equation for the slope of a line. MX plus B equals yeah, Y. Absolutely. There's a hundred percent an equation. So Amazon has three different measures of profitability. So one is called PPM, pure product margin. There's net PPM, which is the net pure product margin. I'll come back and define each of these. And then they have something called contribution profit or contribution margin. And that's the fully loaded cost 
uh, to deliver, including cost to deliver, but the fully loaded profitability of the item. PPM is really simple. That's just the difference between what Amazon pays for the product and what they sell it for. So that's just really basic, simple margin. Net PPM is that same margin, but net of what we call vendor funding or co-op. And those are monies that the brand gives Amazon in trade trade funding. So that can be like damage allowances, MDF, marketing accruals, freight allowances, crap allowances, subscribe and save allowances. So the net PPM is is net of all of those. So it's like a slightly better number for Amazon than just the pure product margin. And then the contribution margin is totally is completely inclusive of all costs Amazon incurs to ship the product to the end consumer. So it's everything we just discussed. And then they also in the cost in the list of costs include the outbound shipping cost. They actually have the most sophisticated contribution profit tracking mechanisms of any of the retailers. And so every cost associated with an item is tied back to the actual item. So if a shopper contacts customer service and asks about this foundation, that cost of that customer service contact is attributed to that specific SKU. And so the contribution margin is inclusive of customer service contacts, again, the cost to deliver, any damages or liquidations, all of the costs that Amazon incurs to sell a product on its platform. So there's kind of three different measures of profitability. And depending on the situation, they may want to talk about one or the other, you know, if they're talking about a specific issue. And are those all things that you can, I'm going to guess, I feel like I... There's no button in Vendor Central that just calculates all that for you. Do you have to calculate those on your own as a brand or is it stuff a kind of metric provided by your VM? How do you get this information? Yeah, so net PPM and net PPM can be accessed in Vendor Central. The only challenge with that is that, you know, depending on the issue or the negotiation that you're having with your vendor manager, the timelines that they're looking at and you're looking at might not match. So, you know, for example, if you had a product that underwent a pretty significant price match in the last six weeks, your last six weeks net PPM or contribution margin is going to be a lot lower than previous. So if if a vendor manager is screaming about, you know, net PPM, you know, they may be looking at a different time horizon than what you're looking at. Maybe you're looking back a quarter or a year or something like that. So net PPM and PPM are available in Vendor Central. Contribution margin is not. That's a level of transparency that Amazon not, has never really been comfortable with providing in Vendor Central because it would allow other companies to back into their cost structure, which would, would um, you know, they feel like would be sort of a compromise for them competitively. They'll they'll sometimes share it. The vendor manager may share it, but it's not accessible in the tool. Profitability 101. Check. In preparation for this interview, I read through the Illum Group's quarterly e-commerce report for Q4 and saw in a survey that brands were noting large concerns going into the new year, which is long and gone by now, over profitability with retailers. This concern from the brands led me to two thoughts. The first was, is there any difference in how profitability is calculated across physical and digital retail? And then what are the main challenges that brands and or retailers face regarding profitability? I don't know that it's more complicated as much as it's just a different equation. So the equation is different. So in e-commerce, the profit equation often includes for the retailer, includes the cost to deliver the item to the consumer. In brick and mortar, it doesn't. And then the equation's also a little bit different in brick and mortar because the shopper rarely walks out of a store with one thing. 
So they're typically buying a larger basket size. And so if there is an unprofitable item in that basket, it can be amortized over a larger ring. And so the the basket might be profitable, but the item is not. In e-commerce, the retailers and more specifically Amazon tend to be very focused on item level profitability because those items often ship alone. And then that item level profitability is also burdened by the cost to deliver to the end consumer. So the it's not that it's necessarily harder. It's just a little bit it's a different equation. And then so that's on the retailer side. I think another reason that it does feel less profitable for brands is because in e-commerce, we also have the cost of retail media. So it used to be more of a discretionary you know, spend a decision if you wanted to spend retail media dollars or not. But more and more, the platforms are becoming pay to play. So for example, with Amazon for top brands, they negotiate you know, contractually obligated retail media spend at the onset of the negotiations season. And those numbers are really high for big brands. Even for smaller brands, it's really difficult to be just discovered on Amazon anymore because most of the real estate on the website that used to be dedicated toward automation and personalization and merchandising is now taken up by advertising. And so it is kind of pay to play. Brands do have to pay for retail media. And in a lot of cases, Brands include that retail media spend in their cost to serve that retailer. Now, I take issue with that. I don't think that's the right way to look at retail media spend. I feel as though we are starting, I know that we are starting to see data that demonstrates that retail media spend influences offline sales and it can hit the shopper at all the places in the funnel. It can be an awareness driving play all the way down to like a very transactional activation play. You know, each platform can only tell you the sales on their own platform. But we do know that if you, I mean, just intuitively, if you're a shopper and you shop on, go on Amazon and we'll stick with my foundation because that's what I bought most recently on Amazon. But if you search for a certain foundation and you're served an ad, and then you don't buy it that day, and then maybe I pick it up the next time I'm at Walgreens, that that ad influenced that transaction. And that's a cross-platform, and we don't have data on that yet. There's no provider that's doing an excellent job of tying that all together for us. So I do think the equation's a little different for consumer brands in e-commerce because they're including that retail media cost in their cost to serve, but I don't necessarily think long-term it belongs there. Now we have an understanding of some of those challenges and hurdles toward profitability that brands face. But over time, I've noticed that having an entirely profitable e-commerce catalog as a CPG brand seems unlikely. And I actually even heard the other day the phrase, let's focus our media strategies on ASINs that are actually profitable. But why do brands sell unprofitable products? Yeah, well, a lot of those products that are unprofitable in an e-commerce environment are top sellers and hugely profitable in a brick and mortar environment. So for example, let's take dog food. That's like dried bag dog food. Conventional dog food is probably one of the worst items online from a profitability perspective because it's super heavy and it's costly to ship and the selling price is often quite low. You know, it depends on the dog food, but if you're talking about like a conventional entry-level dog food, you know, you might, it's like maybe a dollar a pound, maybe less, right? And so in that case, that's a terrible e-commerce skew, but it's a great brick and mortar skew because the shopper is grabbing it off the shelves themselves and it's a high ring and the, the weight of the item has no bearing on the profitability of the item. And it's a great traffic driver because you have to have dog food. Like you have to feed your, if you have a pet, you have to feed your pet. So it's a good, good traffic driver. 
for the brick and mortar environment. So those are that's an example of an item that has a really different profit, different economics online and in store. And you can apply that to any, you know, any really heavy, bulky item. So everything from treadmills <laughs> and uh, and cat litter and cat trees. There's a lot of stuff in pet that's really unprofitable. Diapers, paper towels, like all these things are huge. And then they're also often heavily price matched across retailers. So they're sometimes sold below below the cost. I mean, if it's sold below the cost, you can't make money on it. If it's sold below the cost and you have to ship it to the end consumer, like that's a really negative equation for the retailer. So I think the economics are just really different. But the reason that a lot of those products are sold online is because the retailers want them online. Even if they lose money, you know, those are the traffic drivers. Those are the important SKUs. I do think there is a strategy that we see a lot of brands employ where they do focus their advertising on the more profitable SKUs because, well, sometimes they can't advertise the unprofitable ones. So there's a there's no choice. But there's also a, a strategic way to do that to try to build the portfolio that is more profitable. So, for example, if you sell dog food and dog treats, dog treats weigh a lot less. You know, maybe you're going to focus some of your marketing on that to try to drive a mixed shift in your portfolio toward the treats, or at least to just be able to advertise some of the products in your portfolio. So that helps answer my question about how my next day delivery of an 85 pound bag of dog food could be profitable, in which maybe it's just not. So can I leave now? I suppose. Before we get to Andrea's key takeaways for this episode, we needed to think about solutions for anyone really struggling with profitability as a whole. There are a lot of ways to uncrap products. And, you know, we still work with manufacturers who are kind of unwilling to relook at the innovation cycle, right? There, there are a lot of products that we use every day that were designed entirely for e-commerce and we don't even think about it. So if you look at like laundry detergent pods, that was a product that was entirely developed for e-commerce because jugs of laundry detergent are leaky and heavy and it's mostly liquid and it has a low retail selling price. If you look at the pods market, I mean, it still is heavily price matched. And so there's some challenges there. But the average selling price per pod is much higher because they've developed a product that is more e-commerce friendly so it doesn't leak and have kind of a lot of the same issues that the old profile had. It's lighter weight and it delivers additional customer value because it's convenient. And so that's a great example of a product that many of us use every day and we don't even realize was designed for e-commerce. Other examples include single serve coffee. Bags of, you know, fresh beans or freshly ground coffee fare very poorly online. They have a, a short shelf life, you know, particularly for some of the higher end brands where freshness is really important. They're heavy. It's kind of like they're heavily price matched. It's a lot like shipping dirt around <laughs> the United States. And so single serve coffee, kind of same thing. You know, it's playing on a convenience element. It's, uh, you know, you're able to charge a higher retail price. It's lighter, lighter weight. And so there are a lot of these products that were developed for e-commerce. Another big couple of big trends that have performed really well online are the powdered electrolyte drinks versus a bottled electrolyte drink. Like you can't sell Gatorade on Amazon. I mean, you can, but it's like not very profitable, but you can sell liquid IV. And similarly, you know, looking at like the powdered peanut butter trend, th there are a lot of products where the innovators really thought about what would be a good e-commerce friendly SKU and developed product for it. I haven't seen that same level of innovation or marketing or adoption by consumers in some of the in, in other some other categories and with some other brands. 
And so I think it, re- and it's expensive. It's expensive to go through an R&D cycle for a, an e-commerce business that might be 10, 20% of your total business. So I can, I can understand why it isn't always justified, but it does hurt the growth. You know, if we know that 60% of shoppers are beginning their journey online, you know, 60, Forrester says 60 as of 2022, that 60% of purchases are digitally influenced. So if you can't sell your products online to begin with because they're all crapped out at all the retailers, you're not even in the consideration set to begin with. And so if we're making investment decisions based on that 10, 20% of businesses happening online, we're using the wrong number. Like we need to be looking at the 60% of purchases that are digitally influenced when we're making investment strategies and making our investment decisions online. So first, I think there's some R&D that can happen. I think there's also some like retrofitting that is still uh, can still happen. You know, a lot of products are unprofitable online because they have to be have additional packaging added to them at the end of the cycle. So it's not even like you need to come up with moving consumers from bag coffee to single serve coffee. You just need a different lid on your shampoo or something because that prep, that additional prep that has to happen costs money. It's another touch or products maybe are in a sleeve of 12, but that's too many to sell to a customer and you need a sleeve of three or whatever. So there's some like modifications or like light customization that can happen that can improve the profitability. But there are some products where you've kind of done everything and it's still, it's price match below cost and there's nothing you can do. And in those cases, you know, we're starting to see brands just not sell those on Amazon or be selective about which retailers to sell them to or come up with differentiated assortment. But there are there are or make it only available for in-store pickup. And and those are okay strategies. I think years ago everyone was afraid to employ those because we all wanted to make sure we had the e-commerce consumer. But at the end of the day, I mean, if this we all have to make money in this business. <laughs> and I will I will say, I think the consumer has been quite spoiled over the last five to ten years as all of these retailers have fought for the e-commerce customer. They've made everything free shipping. They're carrying products that never had any business being online to begin with. And the shopper gets it all delivered, you know, next day, (laughs) which is great. I mean, it's like I have benefited from this evolution as a consumer, but it's not sustainable. And I think we're already starting to see some retailers pull back on some of that, especially given the economic headwinds they're all facing right now. Yeah, me and my 85-pound bag of dog food that shows up the next day. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, but don't even want (laughs) to know. I wanted to sort of end it with going back to that Alum Group quarterly report. What are your kind of three top pieces of advice for those brands who stated profitability with retailers as that number one concern going into 2023? A couple of things. So first, I think that retailer negotiations are really important this year. And so really making sure to subscribe to an interest-based negotiations philosophy. And interest-based negotiations means instead of, you know, sort of focusing on kind of three things, not being able to come to alignment on those three things, bringing as many interests to the table as possible in the interest of having a more mutually successful negotiation. So this is the year to bring in that you want Amazon to order differently from you or that you need some more support figuring out why you're getting so many chargebacks or, you know, there are, we need to bring all the interests into the negotiation this year so that we don't as consumer brands, we're, we're not only given three options and we have to fund one of them, right? So I think interest-based negotiations is really important. I think in, the, in light of the entire climate, 
and profitability, it behooves manufacturers to really focus on loyalty marketing this year. And I say that because we know that the shopper is being has more restricted income in a lot of cases, is being more cautious about their spending. And when that happens, we often see less retailer loyalty and less brand loyalty. Shoppers trade down to private label or to cheaper brands or to cheaper retailers. And so I think that loyalty marketing is really important. It's a lot easier and cheaper to retain an existing shopper than it is to attract a new one. And it's not to say we shouldn't work on new customer acquisition. I'm not saying that. But I do think making sure that we're investing significantly in our loyalty driving initiatives and retention and auto replenishment and all of these things that help us activate the recurring shopper is really important because they are switching and we need to tell them why they if if we charge more for our products we need to tell them why why that matters and like why we charge more and what the unique selling proposition is so i think retailer negotiations are really important to focus on and prepare for focusing on mutually beneficial negotiations i think that the loyalty marketing is really important and then I think there's we're starting to see brands do a lot with data and analytics. It was actually one of the top areas that brands were focused on this year in a pro, in a I think it was in a Profitero survey that I read and you know digital shelf management and all kinds of data and analytics and I think it's because we're really trying to understand the profitability and incrementality of our retail media spend as consumer brands. And so trying to make a case for or understand if you have another dollar where's the best retailer to put it with what's the best objective to tie it to is it awareness loyalty where in the funnel is it you know competition like really thinking about what we're trying to accomplish with retail media instead of thinking of it as you know just a budget we need to spend with a retailer but i think think it's really setting some goals and getting crystal clear with what we're trying to accomplish in order to make it as efficient as possible for us so i would say those are kind of the three three areas that we have seen most brands focus on okay now we can actually really wrap up by going Back to your digital wish list from the beginning. So that thing that just lives forever in some online cart and why? <laughs> it's a Yamaha digital piano. It's been sitting in my cart on a few different retailer websites yet to be. I have a Yamaha digital piano, but I it's a very old digital piano and it doesn't have Bluetooth and recording capabilities. And, you know, the technology has just improved so much in the last 20 years. So for sure, it's been sitting in my cart for a long time. Yeah, those are those can be expensive, especially when you get going. That's why it's still sitting in my yeah. cart. <laughs> but it's like totally worth it. It's just, do I want to spend the money to get all of the features that I really need to be a modern piano player? Yeah, and it's like, I think the other thing is that it's really hard to return it. And so I, I want to make sure that I've, I mean, they have like of the line I'm looking at, there's like five different models. And so it's sitting in my cart because I'd like to get over. There's a, a store near Seattle. It's like about 45 minutes away that has them all. And I could go look at them, but I have to prioritize that time spent doing that. And that wraps up another episode of Mastering Retail. Thank you to Andrea Leigh from the Illum Group for joining me and educating all of us on profitability in e-commerce. You can check out the Illum Group at illumgroup.com. And while you're at that, please rate and or review this episode and share it with your network. This episode was produced by Klaus Cancel with sound design from Enos Attention. See you next time. <laughs>